Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. With me today, we've got Robin Oliver. And Robin has very recently commissioned a report looking at effective tax rates across, well, sort of the wealth distribution and the income distribution. Robin previously headed up research at IRD and has a wealth of international experience at very high levels in, well, tax and everything related to it. He's widely regarded as one of the country's top tax experts. So when he commissions and puts out a report on what's going on in tax, we should be paying attention to it. So I'm really happy that I get a chance to have a chat with Robin about it. So thank you for joining us, Robin. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here and thank you for letting me on. So what were the, I guess first, before we get to the main findings, what is the context for this work? Why did you commission it? It seems generally the kind of thing that Treasury or IRD would be doing on their own. Well, the uh, in the last budget that the government had said they're going to commission and they really do this report, and into high wealth individuals, the effective tax rates uh, they face. We had some you know, clients who were very upset about the intrusive nature of this inquiry into their private lives and beyond anything that they're required to do for tax reasons. And we reflecting that concern. We had discussions with officials, how they're going about the process, what they were doing. We became increasingly concerned that the methodology did not follow orthodox economic techniques for effective tax rates, your normal stuff, King Fullerton, the way international studies always work in this area, the OECD and what have you, and that it could produce highly misleading results. And we talked to SAPARI, the uh, Economic Consulting Group. They confirmed our concerns about it, and we therefore said, well, let's get something on the table, which is in line with international normal techniques and methodology. So uh, we have that out out there on the table for people to look at, and that's basically behind it all. Great. So I'll just step back to a couple of definitions before we get into the results and then why they matter. So you'd mentioned effective tax rates. What's the difference between that and, well, the 39% rate that higher income people are on or the 33% rate? What's, What's the difference? Well, it's trying to take a wider definition of income, and this is, gets totally you know, controversial at some stage. What is it? It's described as economic income. Well, economic income is a nebulous concept, actually. Very good for analysis, but in your normal studies of investment, it will say, well, what's the return, the commercial return of that investment over a period of time on your expected rate of return? What's the tax wedge on that? And that gives you your effective tax rate. So it's trying to say we have a tax rules which are all defined income. And effectively, we've got a whole two volumes of income tax legislation defining what is income. And that's not what an economist thinks is income or probably not the average person. So you're trying to widen the definition. And one of the problems is the way that study is methodology used is a very selective widening of the definition. So you have income tax definition, and then you start to include things which are not income under the Income Tax Act. And you've got to be very careful what results you get out of that. But in simple terms, is if you look at an investment, you make an investment, you get a return off that investment, how much of that return is taken, what percentage is taken in tax and what percentage at an expected rate of return, 
are you going to uh, keep for yourself post-tax? And looking at pre-tax, post-tax, that gives you effective tax rate. So I'm very familiar with effective marginal tax rate schedules that we'll see. Sometimes they're put together, they show these big spikes around particular bands, particularly around lower incomes and middle income. If you're coming off of different income linked benefits, then you can have very high effective marginal tax rates. In the report, as I was reading through, you don't just have the effective marginal tax rates, you've also got effective average tax rates. One of the worries that I had had in the review that IRD was being asked to do, or at least as, as I'd understood it, it sounded like they're going to be taking a very broad definition of all of the money that higher income earners might earn or all of the income that they earn, and then taking the tax that's paid to central government, divide the one by the other, call that their tax rate, and whatever number is will be probably lower than the statutory rate. Of course, the same would be true in other tax bans, at least as I've understood things. The superior work broadened this out, right? That's one of the conclusions. There's a big caveat to that, but one of the conclusions of the report is no one pays the statutory tax rates. By by definition, you you have a a workable definition of tax for the Income Tax Act that's workable, that you can measure, that's objective, seen as fair, that meets various policy trade-offs, uh, that's going to be narrower than any wider definition of income, and therefore, you know, by definition, your effective tax rate's lower than your statutory rate. The big caveat is inflation, because as we all know, you put money in the bank, get interest, basically all returns on capital, uh, some of that return is simply compensation for inflation. So you've got to take real income, which is narrower, and that's fine. Except using the methodology that their revenue is using, they can't do that. They take nominal. Well, that seemed to be one of the terrible trade-offs in tax policy, right? So there's always been this distortion in by taxing nominal interest returns. IRD has always considered it to be really difficult to try and set up an entire tax system based on reals, especially once you get into complex corporate debt instruments and those structures. Is it as hard of a trade-off as it seemed, or are we getting now into realms where, because inflation seems to be stickier and higher for longer than we would have liked, that it's worth sorting that mess out? Well, it's certainly, it's really complicated with interest income or the equivalent. Uh, Do you do it daily? Do you do it monthly? And what happens with interest rates which are floating and all sorts of issues and you've got to be balanced on the deduction side, the income side, with trading stock and with depreciable assets, both of which you have to index as well, it's much easier. Mm-hmm. The general conclusion, the government looked at it seriously back in 1989, is that, well, once inflation came down, possibly not worth the candle. That's one of the big problems with inflation, is it totally distorts the income tax system, and you'd want to have it in it. but if you're going to agree upon anything that economic income is, it's not including the inflationary element. And that's highly distorting because where is the returns on capital, which are actually overstating income under the Income Tax Act compared to understating it for most people? It's with the people with capital, which is high wealth people. So immediately you've got a big, big problem. So those are the sort of areas of concerns, whereas you can actually look at real income using the methodology superior using, which is expected rates of return, 
what's the tax wedge on assets that get that expected rate of return, different assets have different tax treatments, and you can work out under normal methodology basically an estimate of what the effective tax rates are for different wealth and income levels. So when you did that, what were the findings? Or when Sapiri did The findings is exactly what you would expect, really. It's that most people have effective tax rates on that measure, which is a very wide measure. Sapiri uses very wide measure of economic income. Everybody's effective tax rates are generally less than their statutory rates. Don't pay the full rates because you have a wider definition of income. And so what you end up with is the low-income earners have negative effective tax rates. They get more back from the government than they pay in tax. And that's because of all the benefits they get, cash benefits in particular. And then you can add on others as well. But And that's working for families, which is directly related to the tax system, but also New Zealand super, job seeker, accommodation supplement, and so forth. So you get all these low-income earners actually paying negative average effective tax rates, very high marginal rates, very low average rates. Then you go to the middle class, if you like, uh, middle income earners who own their own home or and which is you know, low low mortgage, they get tax free benefits of home ownership, imputed rental income, and capital gains on the house, and they have low effective tax rates for that reason. And the high income earners have low effective tax rates because they get capital gains on investments and what have. Uh, and so everybody's the same except for the very middle income earners between 50 and 100,000 who are renting, who pay massively high compared to others, relatively massively high average tax rates. They pay the highest. Yeah, and one of the things that comes through in the report is that this is all a consequence of policy decisions, and some of it is because government wants to achieve an outcome, some of it is it's trying to avoid an even worse outcome. So when you're talking about singles, middle income, well, the whole benefit system is designed around people with kids. So earners without children who aren't getting any income-linked benefits, of course, the, the, their average tax rates are going to be a lot higher than otherwise. In other cases, it does seem to be just awful trade-offs. So in the report, it talks about company tax rates and pie rates as one example. So if you, I guess it'd be better for just to explain it to, to me and to the listeners then, what's, what are the trade-offs that we're facing there? So if the government has made a policy decision that the company rate is going to be lower than the top marginal tax rate, well, you've got an incentive that way, but why not just increase the company rate to 39%? Right. So, yeah, you've got all of these reasons why the the income tax definition of income is what it is, is for thought through, carefully thought through, argued for years, policy decisions. And they're not random and they're not mistakes. And uh, you take the company one, well, you take the family home, for example. We don't tax imputed rental income on the family home. The rent you'd have to pay if you were renting it from someone else. And that's a tax benefit. Well, that's deliberately there. It's decided by society. Any government that tried to do that would be out of office, I'd say, in five minutes. So uh, that was a deliberate decision. You take the company rate, we've considered it 28%. The individual rate at the top level, over 180,000, 39%. A big incentive, obviously, to earn your income in a company. That's a deliberate decision because we could could, uh, take away that, if you like, loophole 
and tax companies at 39. With that, we would have a massive reduction in inbound investment and a massive increase in the rate of return that's required by foreigners. We get most of our investment, or a lot of our investment, completely marginal from foreigners. They would require a much higher rate of return. We'd have much lower level of investment. We'd have much lower productivity. We'd have much lower wages. And what you'd end up, this is orthodox economics, you'd end up with higher rate of return on capital, richer people being richer, labor people earning labor income being poorer, and foreigners completely indifferent because they are earning a, a higher rate of return on their less capital they're investing. And all you've achieved is actually making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And that's by increasing the company tax rate to 39% and on foreigners. And that's so, you know, a government's not going to do that. And but it wants to increase the personal rate to 39. And that's, you know, the, the, the obvious solution is to align the rates at 30 or something. But, you know, governments won't do that because they they want to be seen as having this progressive tax system and, you know, to the extent it is. But then you live with that result. Yeah, because the alternative... Some people yeah. do pay 39%. Not everybody can put their money in company. If if you are earning link income out of personal exertion, you're an employee, chief executive of a company, you can't just pop it all into a company. IRD would not allow that. And so if you're a lawyer, you can't do it. I mean, so you live with these anomalies. Yeah. And that's a trade-off you're making. You want a high rate on very rich people. You've got to keep the company rate low to keep your investment up, and you live with that trade-off. And you cannot avoid it. Yeah. So I taught a little bit of tax when I was I used to lecture at Vic in their uh, public econ, at least sec- second year, and I always frame this as being these awful trade-offs, right? That. Yeah. Either you're going to be having an incentive to put money in companies rather than keeping it as income, or you're going to be throwing away money that foreigners would have been investing here and providing benefits here, deepening capital. And what sucks least, right, is the usual. Yes, that's right. They're hard trade-offs, and they're trade-offs all governments have faced. And then, you know, just to say that, well, everybody should pay you know, tax at an effective rate because we've widened the definition in theory into wider, ignores all those trade-offs. But they come back and they don't, don't go away. And so you'll never have a system. So what's the point of these sort yeah. of exercises? And even barring the political constraints around taxing rental income, the money that I would be paying to myself as a landlord, you start thinking about a structure that you'd need around that, right? Because if I'm separating myself into two people, one is with the landlord and the other one that I'm paying rent to, I start to have to keep accounts of all of the reno and the upkeep and then getting a tax deduction regime around that on my investor side. You you push the economics to the absurd point and you go more absurd, you start taxing your imputed household income from looking after children or doing the lawns. It's all, you know, it's all part of imputed income, exactly the same. And, you know, you're, you're getting into an area where the tax system cannot operate on that sort of basis because it needs hard, objective numbers that people think are reasonably fair. And to hypothesise some different number, different way of calculating income, and then saying that's how that's what the tax rate should be if they're not, someone's ripping the system off is silly. Yeah. The results that you, you need re- a workable system. Yeah, well, obviously. 
otherwise it all falls apart and you don't have any money to collect. So yeah. the results that Superior was coming were coming to didn't seem that unfamiliar if you're, well, there was a piece in Policy Quarterly, Aziz Ball and a bunch of co-authors, they'd looked at effective tax across income deciles. This is on data for, that's more than 10 years out of date now. Treasury's now updating the work, but yeah. the, the older work showed a pretty clear pattern that over a series of years, the bottom five, six deciles receive a lot more in transfers than they pay in tax. The next three it's a bit of a wash and almost everything on well, the net payments that cover everything else come out of the, mainly the top decile, maybe the top two deciles. The superior work seems fairly consistent with that kind of result as well. Yeah, totally. That's a, that kind of result that well, the bulk of the people in the middle, the tax welfare system basically smooths income over yeah. a lifetime, which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's, you know, you get money when you're a child and you pay money when you're middle age, you get more money when you're retired. And that's, you know, the income smoothing. I mean, is the government the most efficient person way to do that? You, know, you can argue about, but it's not a bad thing. The poor people, for whatever reason, uh, get you know money from society and we probably want that as society. And the, the rich pay for it. I mean, but that's that's the limit of what how the tax system can operate. I mean, it, it uh, it's not there to redistribute redistribute income in any massive way. You do that through expenditure, not through not through taxes, because of the trade offs we've talked about. I mean, that the most effective way of redistributing income is ensuring good hospital care, good education, you know, publicly provided education care, or, or you know, publicly funded doesn't have to be provided. And all of those things, I mean, that's how, you know, you, you make sure society is cohesive and equitable. And I guess that was but, part you know, of... Forget about trying to use the tax system too much, you know, a little bit, a little bit, but that's about it. I guess that was part of the impetus for the work that Minister Parker commissioned. So the view had been not just around redistribution, but some sense that wealthier households weren't paying their fair share, that they were able to hide income in various ways, and that they weren't contributing to the extent that Minister Parker thought they should be or that voter base might might think that they should be. Yep. Here you're showing that, well, their effective tax rate is a little less than the statutory rate, but that's true across the board. So there wouldn't be anything particularly weird about it just in the high net worth sense. And I'd say basically the system is not broken. You could argue that aspects of it could be improved a bit, and you could argue that those improvements would make it worse, but yeah, the overall system's not broken. The ability to pay principle, the more you've got, the more you tax you pay, operates broadly. It's not a broken system at all, and it, it's not even like the UK and the US, which is much more areas where there's a large number of multi-rich people. Yeah, our definitions of wealth pale into, you know, IRD defines $50 million New Zealand as, as high wealth, and that would be a joke in the US. But we don't have that very large or significant group of people paying very low levels of tax and, you know, dominating society. It just doesn't happen here. And, you know, with you know, Vice Wilkinson studies and all that shows, you know, income inequality in New Zealand, wealth inequality is actually, you know, it's a problem that doesn't exist that we try to find fixes for. But, you know, if we are trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist, 
I suppose that's okay, but don't do major damage in doing so. And we could if we take sort of wrong numbers out of false methodologies and, and end up with, you know, struggling to, you know, for reasons of some view of fairness, struggling to to increase those effective tax rates for the rich up to the statutory rates, while presumably leaving the poor, hopefully, with negative rates, because no one's suggesting we get rid of all the support we give to low-income families. So, shoot, certainly not the Labour government. So you've got to be just practical about this whole thing. But it is a concern if you know, your methodology is faulty and you know how people can interpret that. And that's more or less the reason we put the report out. And any of the main issue comes down to and the high wealth is capital gains. You know. But even if we had a capital gains tax, it would only be on realisation basis. And it still wouldn't reflect effective tax rates because no one taxes on an accrual basis because it's not practical to do. And the enormous sort of, you know, we, we would always exempt the family home. And, and that's a sensible thing to do. I mean, if I'm living in my family home and, you know, the period when the family home prices went up, I sell my family home to move to another place and I've got to pay the market price the other place. And the government says, well, we'll t- you've made a profit of 300000 bucks. We'll take you know, a third of that. Well, I can't afford the other home now. My economic income is completely unchanged. I'm still living in this home and enjoying the same benefits as I did before. And some economists tell me I've made income. Well, I haven't. Yeah. So that's a nebulous aspect of economic income. Yeah, I've agreed with you on all, on all of that, and that's been my standard argument on it. Of course, as of about a year ago, I was kind of wishing that they'd bring in a capital gains tax with a valuate with a valuation date of that day on my house when it was at the crazy COVID inflated rates, so that I could get yeah. the tax write off when I eventually sell the thing. Because there's no way it's going to hit the peaks that it did a couple of years ago again. But that's just more of an aside and just silliness. <laughs> so. The IRD report should be coming out in, what, a month or two? I think it's public. Next week, along with the Treasury report. And the Treasury report is likely the update to the older Ball Aziz so, work. Yeah. We, we don't know. We didn't know this when we released our report, to be honest. These reports would be out so soon. But the Treasury report, as far as we we have follows a similar methodology anyway to the Superior Report. Yeah. But that's an interesting point, you know. Treasury is using orthodox economics, showing an orthodox result will be the same. And the unorthodox thing, we don't know what results it's going to show, but probably a bit the same, to be honest, you know, I think. Well, it's great that your report's very timely then. It's something for people to look back at when Minister Parker comes out with the IRD report the next week or two, showing, well, what we're expecting it to be showing. There's a broader context here around how statutory rates can differ substantially from the effect of actual tax rates and then it happens across the income distribution. The Treasury work, a working paper version of it, had been presented at Victoria University about a month ago. It was very much in line with the older Aziz results. I'm looking forward to seeing the final version of it. So listeners can look forward to those as well. I'm sure that we'll get links up to those in our newsletter, Insights, come the appropriate time. Thank you, Robin. This has been very informative. Thank you, Eric. It's always, always a joy to talk to you. Thank you. Stay tuned. Thank you so much, everyone.